Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk's executive producer, Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny interviews Barton Seaver, a chef, author, educator, and leading expert on seafood literacy and sustainable seafood. They discuss seafood literacy and what chefs and consumers should know about the differences between types of seafood. Then, she talks with Dennis Bagneris, CEO of Liberty's Kitchen in New Orleans, Louisiana. They discuss how Liberty's Kitchen's youth training program changes the lives of young people. They also talk about food justice in New Orleans and how Liberty's Kitchen supports its participants beyond graduation. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. Uh, Today, I get to chat with somebody I've known for a long time and who I really, really admire. Um, uh, Barton Seaver is a leading expert in sustainable seafood with experience as a chef, author, speaker, educator, advocate. There's a whole long list of things that he does. Um, He's one of the most interesting people I know. He went from being a chef in Washington, D.C. to being a National Geographic explorer, traveling all over the world. Um, He's now, uh, he was the director of the Sustainable Seafood and Health Initiative at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, He's led initiatives to, where he led initiatives to inform consumers and institutions about how our choices for diets and menus can promote healthier people, resilient ecosystems, and more secure food supplies, as well as thriving communities. Um, he's also served as the Senior Advisor in Sustainable Seafood Innovations at the University of New England and as a Sustainability Fellow at the New England Aquarium. And now he is the founder of, of Coastal Culinary Academy, uh, which is a platform that really seeks to increase consumption of and awareness about seafood. And he also has this very cool um, seafood literacy course, and uh, we can give the, the website out to that later. Barton, it's really nice to see you. It's been a while now. I feel like the last time I saw you was in Boston a few years ago. Yeah, it's nice to reconnect. And thank you for such a, a kind and generous introduction. Yeah, I and uh, yeah, I really like interacting with humans, especially ones that I admire and love <laughs> myself. So yeah, I know this is, uh, this is fun talking, you know, awesome. I know. I know. It's great, right? <laughs> people you haven't seen in a while. Um, so I, you know, one of the first questions I like to ask, um, because I think it's a good way for our audience to get to know people and and I know you have so many that you can share, but what is your favorite food memory? I, yes, uh, way too many to to sort of pick one. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll pick uh, the sort of the, one of the most formative, which is that I was uh, born and raised in a very multi ethnic neighborhood in Washington D.C. called Mount Pleasant, which at the time was Mount Not Pleasant at all. Uh, <laughs> it was the height of the crack epidemic, and um, you know I was this neighborhood was. You know, it st- stood in the shadow of the uh, the burned out shells of buildings from the '68 riots in D.C., and it was a neighborhood very much in continual transition. But it was Eritrean, Ethiopian, Guatemalan, Andranian, uh, mostly El Salvadorian communities, a lot of African American, Black community. Yeah. Uh, and what was so amazing about these communities? So many of them were, were fleeing civil unrest in their own countries, coming here, and. Uh, you know, as, as you and I think everybody on this uh, webinar in, in, in your constituency and, and constellation would would agree that immigration is well, it, it's the foundation of, of what this country is and why it's great. And uh, but for people that were here, maybe not because of their own, <laughs> this wasn't their first choice, but they were fleeing unrest. And when you're when you're running for your lives, you take with you your family and your traditions, and the very best of those traditions are communicated through food at the table. 
yeah. And uh, these were communities that didn't have really much of anything in their in their new new world, uh, but yet found it within them to to share and the generosity and the communion of our commons at the table. Uh, and all the little bodegas would service their needs, which introduced me to Karambola and the heady Eritrean Ethiopian spices and yeah. goat meat, you know, when I was back in the early 80s. Uh, so that, that idea that food was not only a physical exploration of our world, but also of a cultural exploration and sort of expounded upon the profound power of food to identif- self-identify, to share with the world, but also to receive. So... That's Absolutely. been the foundation of everything I've done since. It has. That's so eloquently put. And I lived in both Adams Morgan and um, Columbia Heights. And, you know, the first Ethiopian food I ever had, you know, before going to Ethiopia was in in uh, Mount Pleasant or Adams Morgan, one of one of them. And the Red Sea. That, yeah. And it's like amazing, you know, and I, you know, I was in my twenties and it was, you know, those sorts of being exposed to all of that rich culture. And then, you know, with the, the El Salvadorian food that is so prevalent, I hope it's still prevalent. I haven't been back to those neighborhoods in years, but they've changed quite a bit. Um, I was in Petworth recently and there's just all of these amazing, like restaurants that I'd never seen before, but also like Soul Cycle. And it's weird how the 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 city has become increasingly gentrified and I feel like it's pushed a lot of, of those folks with those rich culinary traditions further and further out of the city. Certainly. And yeah. it's a bit of a complicated legacy for, for me to even understand as I was I, I was born and raised there, but I was certainly part of a a gentrifying wave. You know, my first restaurant, Cafe St. X and Bar Pilar down on 14th and T Street. Uh, you know, my first restaurant was in the building in which Duke Ellington's parents ran their corner store. Uh, yeah. There is very much a complicated legacy about that, uh, but also to the fact that, you know, I, I was born into a neighborhood in which 30% of the house stock was, was empty. Uh, you know, it was a neighborhood that was in such transition and movement that it was, uh, you know, it's hard to know where it started and where it ended and where it was going. And, um, but it certainly created an incredible experience for me. DC was, you know, anything East of the park, (coughs) Rock Creek park, for those of you who know, DC uh, really is an incredibly interesting, diverse town. And um, yeah, I, I, I credit it with who I am today. And I think what you had to say about the history of sort of immigration, I mean, American food is is built on, you know, the the people who came here, whether whether they wanted to or not, as, as you explained before. And I think that's, you know, something really important to remember right now as we watch the uprisings, as we watch, you know, sort of, you know, real uh, change in this country taking place and some of the uh, inequality and inequity that has been, you know, going on. I feel like there's there's more movement towards recognizing again those rich culinary traditions and who they came from and why they are here. Yeah, well, and that's it's one of the. I think that's why seafood is so interesting to me because seafood is, uh, along with vegetables, but certainly as a center of the plate protein, which is the way that we eat in America, uh, largely and then certainly sort of historically. Uh, it is by far the most diverse of the center of the plate proteins that we have, uh, you know, to the point where 
you can name on two hands, maybe even one, the kinds of beef there are, right. you know, the kinds of pork and chicken uh, that are really widely available. And then you look at the common you know, species available in the United States, and there's over 2,000 2, species that are marketed here. Uh, and even within a category seemingly as simple as salmon, you find that there is near infinite variety and, and diversity there. And uh, what I've come to understand, diversity is the cornerstone of sustainability. Whether you're talking about society, whether you're talking about economics, uh, you know, don't put all of your money in one stock, just don't do it. Uh, you know, society is never healthy when it's in an echo chamber of, of like-minded people just talking to each other. Uh, and this goes for ecologically as well. The foundation of sustainability is, is that diversity. And uh, I've really learned that both through my experience living in DC, but also just living and working all over the world. And one of the interesting parallels that I, as you were talking there, thinking about is that 90 plus percent of the seafood we eat in this country is imported, meaning that our decisions that we make have an outsized impact to communities far beyond our vision and our understanding even. Uh, and that's what makes seafood so damn complicated. It's yeah. also what it makes so damn compelling to me. Uh, in terms of a pathway and a change agent, uh, the potential that it yields. Yeah, and we've seen real disruptions to the supply chain of, of seafood because of, of COVID-19, um, at least at the beginning when planes weren't flying, you know, folks couldn't get on trawlers, you couldn't, you know, couldn't dock anywhere. What, what are you seeing in terms, I mean, you live in Maine, which is a seafood sort of mecca in so many ways, but what are you seeing, you know, in terms of your own research around the supply chain disruption and, you know, how that's impacting communities, fishing communities all over the world? Because seafood, it, it's hard to just give, uh, you know, any sort of broad brush stroke yeah. answers other than maybe talking about market forms and the future of that, which I will in a second. But you know, seafood is the most globally traded food commodity. Uh, more than double corn and soy combined. Uh, and so to, to just look at, to say, you know, hey, what's happening in shrimp? Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, it's, it's one of the most complex, obtuse, uh, you know, obscured food supplies that there are. Uh, and, and you're beginning to see, you know, entire countries' production, as we're seeing with Chilean farmed salmon, uh, which is bearing its own issues, but then India, you know, farm shrimp in India, where they just killed off tens of millions of tons of, of shrimp, simply because they're a fast-growing species. There was no market. There was no way to right. process them, uh, you know, with safety. There was no freezer space anywhere to put them into, and no market that was demanding them or foreseen market demand. Yeah. Uh, you know, during COVID. So you get into such a complicated world there. But what I do hope comes out of this is an increased focus and a shift towards frozen seafood. Yeah. Uh, and for all of you culinarians out there who think I'm, I'm blasphemizing myself here, <laughs> you know, I would, I would urge you to take a look anew at frozen seafood. It earned, yes, rightly a very bad reputation because Freezing seafood was what we did as the last step to stop from throwing it into the into the garbage. It was a means to arrest, you know, to stop, prevent spoilage. 
but now, you know, it, it, and basically it was frozen on Friday night after the faithful few didn't buy it at the store for fish and chips Friday. Uh, But nowadays it's oftentimes frozen on the boat or within hours of capture on land directly associated with the fishery geographically. Uh, And it's frozen at such negative, such low temperatures that the freezing process just physiologically uh, doesn't impact the flavor and texture the way it once does, the way it once did in, in lesser technology. Uh, and you get into the supply chain logistics of this. Well, it helps out fisheries by evening out supply. And so you're not in these boom bust cycles of wild fisheries. Uh, it makes it safer because fishermen can go fish when it's not a hurricane out because the market demands it right now. Uh, then you have decreased food waste and up to 40% of all seafood is thrown out post-consumer in America. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, just, yeah. Yeah. And we many, many bad words to describe that. Yes. Absolutely. Um, but then supply chain, you end up with uh, benefits for the environmental impacts of, of slower, lower supply chain, slower, lower impact supply chains that yield benefits across the board and also help to reduce the price of seafood. And it's, you know, getting into my future work, what I'm doing now, I'm trying to get more people across all demographics eating more seafood. Right. Simply put, for environmental, economic, and mostly for health benefits, and so that that key part is reducing cost and creating greater access. And frozen seafood is the key, amongst others, to uh, to enable that. And so I I really do look forward to that increased focus on frozen coming out post COVID. Should we be so fortunate to emerge? Yeah, I've been hearing that a lot too. And you and I have spoken in the past about this sort of cult of fresh when we're talking about food and especially seafood, but also other foods. And I, I hope, you know, as you do, that that COVID, you know, leads to more sort of regionalized processing infrastructure where things can be frozen, as you said, very quickly, um, whether it's fish or vegetables or, you know, other types of, of protein. What do you think about the 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 sort of interest in other ways of preserving fish. I mean, you can dry fish, you can ferment fish. What are, do you think those will take more of a hold? Yeah. You know, I ferment a lot of fish around my house and my nearly 10 month pregnant wife is, uh, she's had enough of it. She's like, you know, get it out of here. Get it out. <laughs> um, you know, she, in years past, she hit her head on the, on the cod hanging from the ceiling one too many times in the, in the mudroom. <laughs> And when I told her it was mistletoe of the sea and went in for a kiss, you know. So, <laughs> so no, no fermentation. <laughs> Buy it from the experts. Yes, absolutely. It's delicious and wonderful. But uh, yeah, careful, careful. You, you got to have a little bit of property to uh, to segregate the, uh, <laughs> the, the funk too. Um, certainly there's been a resurgence in the interest in canned seafood, tinned seafood uh, you know, for the sort of a, a nicer way to say it or at least foreign way to say it, as they do in the UK. Uh, We're seeing a huge interest and boom in canned seafood sales during COVID right now, simply because of convenience. And if you're shopping every eight days instead of three days, as we're seeing now in the national average, uh, yeah, you're looking to canned seafood as a convenience item. Uh, And that's my hope for frozen seafood, that it too begins, instead of being the protein that you have to buy and cook on its time scale, you're buying it as a convenience protein when putting it in your freezer. 
but I, I don't think that that is necessarily going to be a massive replacement in terms of the center of the plate, which protein are we as Americans choosing? Uh, it will always hold its place. And I hope that other species other than just tunas, which can be can very sustainably, there's great products out there. But if you're looking at sockeye salmon from Bristol Bay, you're looking at pink salmon from Alaska reaches north. Uh, if you're looking at mussels, clams, oysters, mackerel, sardines, herring, anchovies. These are the species that we really should be pushing our culinary attentions towards anyway. Uh, And, you know, canned, unfortunately, like frozen has a a legacy bias against it. But, um, you know, if my, if my three and a half year old kid squid is, is, is proof of it, if you open it with a smile and you call them baby sharks, well, they're delicious. So does anybody want to sing with me? Baby sharks. There you go. Oh no. Now that'll be in my head for days. You you know, you mentioned (laughs) diversity, but uh, you know, you just, uh, you know, alluded to the fact that, that Americans or consumers in general only eat a few species of fish. I mean, tuna is a, a a pretty good example of that, especially when we're talking about tin seafood. Why are we afraid to try other kinds of fish? How, you know, why are consumers so sort of baffled by seafood? It is more complicated. Uh, simply put, it has more variables to it. And when you start introducing variables like different species, uh, you know, if, if I'm giving you a Rhode Island red chicken versus, a, you know, a, a bantam or whatever else, you still know how to roast a chicken. But if I give you mackerel versus flounder versus salmon, people are going to look at it and say these are completely different culinary animals, which takes training, not much, but it does take training to see beyond that initial trepidation. Uh, But I also, I I like to say that seafood is the only food that's considered guilty before proven innocent. Um, you You walk up to the fish counter and you say, is it fresh? Okay, is it farmed or is it wild? Does it have mercury? Does it have Fukushima radiation? I hear that farm fish is raised in a toilet, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, oh, my God. By the time that I even just get you to meet me at neutral around seafood, yeah. four minutes ago you walked away and got the chicken. <laughs> you know, like the American yeah. consumer yeah. is like, I, I. so, yes, it's complicated. Well, it, it's not complicated, but it is c- more complex but also more interesting from a culinary standpoint, but from a procurement standpoint, it requires us to have greater knowledge and and confidence in that knowledge. And and that's been a real difficulty in in conveying that knowledge to folks. And uh, absolutely. Well, and you wrote this piece uh, about why seafood matters and you debunked some of the myths that I think a lot of folks have around seafood, you know, that wild is always better. Wild caught is always better. Um, you know, the, the, you'd, you'd already talked about toxins, you know, people just sort of assume that there's a high level of toxins in some fish. Can you talk a little bit more about what other myths we need to debunk so that people will eat more seafood? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think first and foremost is, uh, that it is more difficult to cook. Um, you know, I'm going to, uh, let's see, I, I don't have my angles right here. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to do this. I'm going to show you my secret top chef technique. Awesome. 
Uh, right there. <laughs> That's my toaster oven. Yeah, I was going to say, it looks like a toaster oven. <laughs> $89. Yep. I cook, uh, I cook seafood in that four nights a week. Uh, you know, turn it on to roast at 300 degrees, and just about every species of seafood just goes in there, olive oil, salt, no pepper, and it comes out, whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes later. Uh, it, it doesn't stink up the house, which is a common thing. But you know what? I mean, if you fry a steak in your house, your, your house is going to taste like the 99. You know, yeah. I mean, it's going to smell like the Golden Corral. Like, just... <laughs> I mean, if, if you're frying up potatoes, it's going to smell like that too. So, right. it, you know, it's just sort of what smells are we used to rather than does our house smell. Uh, low and slow cooking methods really help us to, A, you don't overcook it because it takes a long time to go from, uh, you know, raw to cooked. And it also takes a long time to go from cooked to overcooked. Um, so just communicating those simple narratives about how to cook. Yeah. Uh, communicating the very simple narrative of uh, diversity. Walk into a store, and if you're lucky enough, and if you have the good fortune to be in an economic position where you are shopping at a place with a, a, a live interaction where seafood is sold fresh, ask the person behind the counter. First, introduce yourself by name. Create a personal sense of responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, a we should be doing that anyway because these are people on our front lines that serve us, and we should dignify them by acknowledging them. Uh, uh, just ask them, hey, what should I be going home with tonight? I, I yeah. mean, that that should be the question. It's a simple thing called catch of the day. Uh, yeah. You know, so start with good seafood just simply like that. And and so that, that's the, the myth of, is it complicated? Uh, the other, another myth that has come up recently, my wife just took a, as I said, she's closer to 10 months pregnant. Now we're having her second child uh, next Wednesday. Oh, congratulations. Yay. Beacon of hope within this chaos that is politics. Um, <laughs> For real. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh she in a breastfeeding class that she was taking, the the teacher told her to completely avoid seafood because you don't want mercury in your in your you know in your breast milk. And while there is certainly truth to that as relates to a very few number of seafood species, all of which are well, most of which are generally not eaten. We're talking about marlins, sharks, tilefish from a very specific area, king mackerels, not on everybody's daily menu. Uh, but but the bottom line is that eating seafood is so vitally and fundamentally important to our human health from in utero all the way through our childhood development, all the way into our the years of our cognitive decline and, and healthy aging. Uh, it is it is dangerous to public health for women like the one, uh, the, the teacher of this breastfeeding class to be saying things like that. Yeah. It is detrimental to society. Um Yes, we should be careful and mindful of the choices, but bottom line is we should first say, I'm going to eat seafood because it is so important. Um, you know, my colleague, Dr. Darius Mosafarian, the Dean of uh, Nutrition at Tufts, at Friedman Tufts School, of yeah. Nutrition, uh, you know, says the three S's of public health are don't smoke, wear your seatbelt and eat seafood. Uh, it's that important. So that's, it's not necessarily a myth to bust so much as it is a perception to completely turn on our head and say, we owe it to ourselves, to our society, to be eating more seafood. And that's why I 
kind of call myself a seafood evangelist at this point, uh, wow. trying to get more people across all demographics to be eating uh, seafood regularly as part of our diet. Um, but then something I would really like to talk about is the that farm versus wild. Yeah. Uh, when I started off as a chef and as a sustainability champion or sort of interested and vocal uh, using my platform vocally, I was very much a farmed and dangerous, you know, flag waver uh, yeah. that seafood, farm seafood just was, was just not right. Uh, and I, I've come to realign my thinking on that. Uh, but also the industry of farming seafood has made such incredible leaps and bounds in terms of Absolutely. sustainability and our understanding of it. And even species like farmed salmon, which have long been the poster fish of everything that's wrong with the entire concept of farming seafood. Uh, we now have leading examples like Quare uh, up in Norway. That's you know first green listed net pen salmon by Monterey Bay Aquarium. You've got a whole host of yellow list. You've got a whole host of uh, new research aquaculture systems, so land-based salmon farming that are automatically greenlisted by Monterey Bay Aquarium. And, and if you're going to say there's a gold standard, well, it's that or the Aquaculture Stewardship Council or best aquaculture practices. And all of those are saying, this is our future. So is the UNFAO. So we need as a culture to rethink that legacy bias that was earned, much like frozen seafood, earned a bad rep. We need to rethink it. And same thing with farmed seafood. And, uh, and, and if I may sort of lengthen this response, and, uh, of a lot to that question, but the biggest impediment to understanding what farmed seafood, the role that it's going to play in our future as partner to, and in, in collaboration with wild, which must endure, uh, is the, the lack of social license mm. and, and social license defined is, is the credit that we give to industry when we understand the virtue and value that it brings to society. And we simply don't understand fishing in general, largely as a, as a community, but certainly fish farming. You know, if I ask you to close your eyes and picture the small American family farmer, American Gothic with the, you know, the undulating hills bathed in autumn splendor yeah. setting sun with perfectly patterned rows of corn leading off into the distance with the red barn paint fading, white house paint chipping, picket fence. Right. Hi, damn, this is the thread by which the fabric of America has been woven, right? I mean, we, yeah. we get it. We yeah. literally even sing of it in our national songs, the amber waves of rain fruited plant. But if I ask you to picture a fishery or a farm, most people are you know, they're standing on a dock gazing wistfully out at the wine dark sea, thinking as though a fishery or a farm is something that happens beyond the horizon of our attention yeah. and executed yeah. by someone else other. Um, but to understand that a fish farm reflects the same values as does a land farm, uh, as does a fishery, we begin to see ourselves in that. And when we see ourselves reflected in the communities, we understand that a fishery or a fish farm is the, it's the sum of the labors and aspirations of a community. What's more beautiful than that? It's really and beautifully put, yeah. Especially when it's in the noble pursuit of feeding people healthy, environmentally sustainable food. And so it's that idea that 
the real cultural revolution with seafood that we need to engender is we see the land beautiful for our presence there. We call it agriculture because we think we're improving upon the land. But we look at the ocean and we think it beautiful for our absence there. Mm. And the idea that we need to begin to see the human future as, as blue uh, and to understand the beauty and value of our presence and stewardship on in, in the ocean is fundamental to our health, our economy, and to the health of our environment. Absolutely. You Amen. are an evangelist. You yeah. I, yeah. I was just like, thank you. Um, I mean, this awareness and, and, and education and the evangelism of, of this, is this why you created uh, the Coastal Culinary Academy? Is that to get that message out there? Yeah. Uh, yes, very much. All of that thing, that sort of high level thinking is embedded in that, but it's also, we just have to create a generation of culinarians who look to seafood as an aspirational ingredient category. Uh, We have to create educational material that is injected into whether it's the apprenticeship programs, you know, where you just learn on the job and and rise up as I did, or whether it's in the culinary school programs, just inject seafood content there that empowers and engages students to become champions of this ingredient category that's going to help everyone if we eat more of it. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, that that information will trickle to the people like your, you know, that your wife went to in the breastfeeding class. If we have better and longer and more in-depth conversations about the benefits of seafood, you know, then there, you, we won't be spreading those myths. I agree. Well, can, can I ask you a question? Yeah, it's a social license aspect of, of fisheries and, and seafood. Uh how do you see sort of the blue and the green economies merging? I mean, you're, yeah, I, you are so rooted in, in the conversation and, and, and the progenitor of, of such, so much of this conversation. How does it relate to your work? I mean, I think for me, it's, you know, my, my expertise, if I can call it that, has always been on land-based agriculture, Right. And, you know, I have, uh, admit freely that I know very little except for, you know, reading all of your great books and materials, uh, little about seafood and, and, and fisheries. I, you know, I have visited, visited fisheries all over the world, places like Ghana, uh, or, you know, where, where they're processing fish and, and, you know, tried to educate myself. But I think it's, what's surprising to me is that there's, there's still that divide, despite, you know, a lot of work by people like you, by Niaz Dory, by people who try to sort of connect fishers to farmers and that kind of thing. And so I think, you know, one of Food Tang's goals by talking to you and so many other seafood experts over the last several weeks since COVID began has been to, you know, for for us to create those connections or help develop them and amplify them because you're doing it so well. Niaz is doing it so well. So many great organizations are, but I'm not doing it enough. <laughs> and so that's, that's part of why we're, we're talking to you because I think um, more environmental organizations need to be taking this on more food and agriculture nonprofits, like, you know, the, the very small one that we have with our, our voice, we, we need to be taking this on and having conversations like this so that, that those connections are more, um, uh, that there is greater awareness about them because there hasn't been. And that my own ignorance has prevented, you know, Food Tank from writing about it more. 
Well, I think that uh, uh, you, you said your expertise, if you could call yourself that, yes, uh, I think you can. <laughs> Guys, you're at the top of the heap, Daniel. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned me as she is, uh, she is certainly a luminary and a leader in this field. Uh, and though she and I have uh, sort of different visions of, of aspects of, of the future of the sustained blue economies, uh, her work, holy shit, and wow, is she amazing. And, and yeah. I, I, you want to talk about somebody who wears their passion on their sleeve, and she is she is truly something. Um, I respect and admire her greatly, and, and, and I know that she has really done incredible work of, of integrating these conversations. And so anybody that's listening who's not familiar with Niaz Dorian, um, Northwest Atlantic Maritime Association, NAMA, uh, amongst others, please check them out. But um, yeah. So what's next for you, Dan? What 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 conversations up next? What conversation is up next is with Liberty's Kitchen in New Orleans. You know, I used to live in New Orleans, so that's our our next one today. Um, but yeah, we're just chugging along. It's been a, a really interesting week. Uh, we we had some good news yesterday um, uh, with a. A grant from the Julia Child Foundation. I was named a Julia Child Foundation Award recipient. So that was kind of fun. So yeah, we're having, you know, despite all of the all of the craziness that is going on in the world right now, I think this is a a, the time to be involved in the food system. And uh, you know, so honored that I get to chat with folks like you. I it's given me a time to reflect and really get to know people better, even though I can't be with them in person. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure. You're the most energetic person I know. I, I wish you and your wife and your son uh, the best next week when your new family member comes. Thank you. Well, it's all the seafood that I eat that keeps me keeps me young at heart and passion that we have uh, and share for the work we do. So thanks for all your leadership, Danny. Thank you for inviting me to your platform and into your community. You're a legend and a leader and, and appreciated. So thank you. You're so nice. Thanks so much, Bart. And I'll see you soon, I hope. Cheers. Bye. Stay well. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. Today, I get to chat with Dennis Bagnaris from Liberty's Kitchen, which is located in my favorite city uh, and former, uh, I, at least I call it my hometown, uh, New Orleans. I lived there for about five years. Dennis is the CEO of Liberty's Kitchen, uh, which provides a paid three-month job training program in the culinary arts and food service for 16 to 24-year-olds in New Orleans. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dennis. Happy to be here, Danny. Thank you for having me. So what I like to do with this podcast slash live cast is, is ask everyone the same first question as a way to, to get to know them. And, and, and it is, what is your favorite food memory? So you, you live in New Orleans. You have a lot of food memories, but is there a particular one you want to share? Oh, wow. <laughs> Does it have to be from New Orleans? Nope. It can be from wherever you want. <laughs> I have one. <laughs> um, uh, before all the craziness with COVID, uh, I had the opportunity for the first time in a long time to take my kids to Disney World. And uh, yeah, uh, we, my wife and I saved up for about two years to make that trip happen. And we really wanted to we really wanted to make it magical for our kids because it was their first trip there. I had, I had uh, at the time a, a, an eight year old and a 12 year old. And nice. uh uh, yeah, it was amazing. We, we for the first time, got to do something that my wife and I talked about 
which was dining at Cinderella's castle, like literally eating in the castle on the property. And it was amazing. We wanted to set it up. We wanted to do it right around sunset, uh, open menu, wanted to get a specific table by the window so they could eat in this castle, see the characters, but also see, you know, Disney World at sunset. And uh, it was just, it was really just, you know, not to be a cliche, but it was really a magical experience. Uh, I think the kids still, they still talk about it, how they met princesses and characters from movies that they like and how they ate in the castle. And the food was just amazing. The service was amazing. And it was, it was the first thing that, it was the first thing they did when they got to the park. So it kind of set the tone for the entire trip. And they, I mean, it was last year, and this, they, they talk about it still like it happened a couple of weeks ago. So it was just one of those wow. things where, as a parent, it was just great to be able to have this opportunity to to be within my means, to save up enough money to give my kids this really, what I'm hoping was going to be this lifelong magical experience uh, for them and, and for me and my wife. And it just, it was happy, to, it was a happy opportunity for us to be able to provide that for them, especially for their first trip there. Oh, I'm so glad. And I'm so ha- glad it happened last year that you had planned it all out and it, you know, it didn't get disrupted by all the craziness that we've seen now. That's really wonderful. That is magical. That's off, really awesome. So I, I'm hoping you can tell us about Liberty's Kitchen and, and what it is and, and why why it exists. What, what's the importance of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Liberty's Kitchen exists uh, for the points that you were making. We serve uh, a population that is just just uh, marginalized and criminalized and just doesn't have opportunities to really have a fair shot at uh, first or even second or first chances in life. Um, so we talk about this this range of young people called the opportunity youth population. And on the surface, they look like lazy young people who just either don't want to keep a job or don't want to be in school. And when you really get involved in the lives of these young people and you really get involved in this work, where you come to recognize that there are systemic issues at play, particularly for uh, this population that we serve who are in poverty, have had runners with juvenile justice, or, or suffering from some level of um, issue with uh, education or, or social, social placements. Uh, it becomes more of an issue of not what these young people are not doing, but more what they're not receiving to get what they need to be successful. Um, that's where Liberty Kitchen was born out of, right? This idea of systemic racism and this challenge of bias that recognizes that, you know, uh, people of color in the city of New Orleans, uh, people in poverty, uh, they don't get a fair shot. They don't get what they need to be successful. Right. So the opportunity here was, what do we know? New Orleans is traditionally, historically, culturally based so much around food. So much happens around food uh, is my, my point, you know, how we relate memories yeah. and community and, and, and support around the importance of food and how we can also look at that dynamic and say, in a place like New Orleans, you know, one in every four households, you know, is food insecure. is right. crazy real, real reality. So we know restaurants are here. We know food is here. How do we connect people to it with opportunities that give them a way to take food and put it in a place of justice that provides opportunity for growth, support, uh, job creation, but also character building and development uh, for for young people uh, and socializations that they're not getting. So that's kind of where Liberty's Kitchen was born out of, this need to say, here's a a group of young people that are criminalized, marginalized, they're not given a fair shake. And then we have an industry here that is the lifeblood of of what New Orleans kind of needs to survive, which is tourism, hospitality, restaurants that are saying they can't keep employees or they need employees and they want 
local lifeblood to fill those spaces. Right. Uh, so that's how Liberation kind of bridges the gap. We are case management. We are life skills, training and development. We are wow. socialization skills, character leadership development skills for this population. But at the same time, we're advocates for them against systems that are despairing any chances they have at strong opportunities for uh, self, self-starter, being self-starter yeah. or self-starter in their life. Yeah, no, it's so interesting, this idea of character building and socializing folks to be able to interact in, in different ways. My um, uh, A friend of Food Tank, uh, Tony Hillary, who works with young people in Harlem, he often says that he's growing young people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I know that you've said that, you know, this is not a cooking school, Liberty's right. Kitchen. This is a place that really changes lives. And, right. and, and I, I, you know, I... I guess I, what I want to ask is what, I mean, what's the impact you're, as you, as you said before, you know, you're doing all this character building, people are getting jobs, they're learning all these new skills, but what does that actually, you know, if you can share a story, what does that actually translate to for a young person? I mean, for a young person is, is the difference between day and night. I mean, so many of the young people that graduate from our program, um, they find this opportunity to believe in themselves, Right. I want to just kind of unpack this opportunity or idea of advocacy or empowerment, right? Right. Because so many nonprofits or schools or programs, they really pat themselves on the back for saying, hey, I fixed that broken youth or I fixed that broken child or whatnot. And that's that's really a very old and kind of outdated way of looking at this work. I think where Liberty Kitchen really resonates in making an impact is we recognize that our children are not broken. The systems around them are broken. Right. True empowerment is not really an opportunity for us to raise up these young people. What it is, is we need to use our privilege, our space, um, our networks to break down the barriers because these young people already have what they need to be successful. They right. have the skill sets. They, they have the power in them. So they empower themselves. And I just want to I just want to unpack the context of nonprofit or organizations or advocates not really being the ones who really should be priding themselves on saving youth. Right. What we need to be doing is knocking down or breaking down the mechanism or machine that has created the obstacles that don't really allow young people to empower themselves. If yeah. that makes sense. That um, makes perfect sense. And it's that investment. You're investing in young people who already you know, they, they have the power, like you said, they are empowered, but you're investing in them. And I think that's where the crucial sort of difference is. Yeah. Yeah. I think to, um, to your, to your earlier question, an example of a young woman that I like to always raise up is, is a young lady who graduated Joya Barconi. You know, uh, she's a graduate of the program now, uh, almost four years. Uh, and she had two kids when she came in. Now she's got three. Uh, she was working at a, fa- a fast food restaurant, when she came to us and it wasn't enough money to make ends meet. Uh, the schedule was too sporadic for her to be, you know, a single mother taking care of her kids. She just didn't really know what to do. And she came here and we helped her and she graduated the program and she uh, did a few jobs here and there. But what she really wanted to do was start her own business. And fast forward to now, she is, or has served as the president of the Youth Leadership Council, which is composed of young people who have graduated this program and alumni who, inform decision-making within our own organization. Uh, she is an employee of the organization. She actually works here and mentors and trains other young people who come through the program. Um, and we have gifted her space 
in our organization for her to have her own kiosk and cubicle so that she can run her own uh, business from our desk. So she doesn't have to pay for rent or utility or computer. We've gifted her those things since we're already open. We want to make sure that we're, we're, again, to your point, investing in her because for her to go out and buy and rent those things, her business was shut down before it even started because she doesn't, she's not able to bring that collateral to the table. So I say that to say, again, the, the, the young people bring what they need to have to the table. They need coaching networks, guidance and pathways to get there. Yeah. Organizations such as myself don't save joyous. We present opportunities to joyous so that she can shine and she can bring other people. She can be an example for other young people. Yeah. Using our kitchen space, being in contact and communication with our board members. Um, as you mentioned, we're not a cooking school. We use cooking environment to train soft skills opportunities so young people can take those things and adapt them to other fields of service. It may all start out in some level in, in food service, which yeah. a lot of people do. First job out of the gate is in food service. I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so did I. You know? <laughs> I, I relate uh, to people all the time that even as a CEO, uh, when, I'm, when I'm speaking in front of groups of people, if I have to put a, get together a meeting of some sort, I fall back on a lot of my customer service training uh, when I was wearing a paper hat and a bow tie at Cafe Dumont when I was 15 years old, you know? Yeah. The skills that you take from, from food service um, can be adapted across the board. What you need is somebody who's just able to translate how the basics of making a salad and preparing a salad equates to time management, effective communication, yeah. uh, being a self-starter, uh, and being able to respond and communicate with supervisors as well as teammates. All those things are, are coming out of, you know, k- kitchen environments, but we have to have the right people in place to be able to kind of connect those dots for young people. So again, they know their worth. I think that's a true component too in this training too, is I think young people hustle to survive a lot of times, but because of the situations that they're in, don't understand the value or the worth that those skill sets can translate to outside of their immediate needs. For example, yeah. when I first started this organization, when I first no, I started, the, started with the organization in, in 2011, a lot of the conversations I had with young people at that time were young people who were coming strictly out of the system. Like they were, they already had records uh, and, they, and they were trying to start over, trying to start a new life. And when you sit down and talk to these young people, you know, you understand that no young person actively decides, hey, I'm going to sell drugs to make a living or I'm going I'm to I'm going to steal a car to, to, to sell it to, to because that's what I've always wanted to do with my life. Nobody's showing all the wrong people are becoming mentors to these young people who are taking advantage of their value. Right. And that translates to young people not knowing any better or doing what they think is right. You know, it's, it's that old adage, how do you tell, how do you tell a starving man it's not right to steal? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You have to eat. You have to survive. So I know there's a lot of argument around what about basic human decency and, and, and conscious, you know, having a conscience. I get all of that. But so much of that is on a different value scale when it becomes an, an abject conversation around need versus want. Right. And for a lot of young people. For anybody, there's a basic need to eat, sleep, and survive. Right. And the more we, again, become gatekeepers on 
who gets those opportunities and yeah. who has those pathways, then we're doing ourselves a disservice around how we are disassociating or disconnecting from populations who are in most need to have these resources. Because again, I keep coming back to these young people already bring it to the table. Right. They just need a way to be able to bring it to the table that projects them on a pathway to success and self-sufficiency. Yeah, absolutely. That opportunity, that investment that you've, you've spoken about, you know, and I, I think that there is a really important link here between the skills that these folks are learning, that these young folks are learning in culinary um, and, and hospitality and, you know, food service that translates into, you know, not just economic justice where they're, you know, making a healthy living, you know, something that they can live on so that they don't have to turn to anything else, but it also gives a chance for creating more equality in the food system because you see, you know, people who don't look like me, you see other folks, you Mm. know, in, 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 in the food service environment. And I think that diversity is, is needed and that, that tr- will help translate into a lot of uh, more equality that we've, you know, desperately needed and have ignored for so long. Absolutely. I, I couldn't disagree more, especially, quite honestly, in the context of what we're seeing right now every day in the media, you know, between the racial unrest or uh, what's happening as far as how COVID has affected the economy. And, you know, you're talking about your teachers and your lower level wage employees being put out on the front line. And just kind of being um, regarded as essential, but at the same time, disposable, you know? Right. And for organizations like us, this is the time for us to really advocate in those spaces to use what we know already about the populations that we serve. I think that's another another place where a lot of nonprofits kind of miss the mark. It's really good, again, to be able to provide services to young people. But if that's all we really did at the end of the day we would no less be as big a part of the mechanism as the systemic issues that our young people are faced with and challenge every day. If we are not learning every day from young people that we serve, why the situations exist as they do within the communities that they come from and how we have space or our footprint to be able to make some changes or at least have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Like every restaurant mm-hmm. partner that we work with, you know, we, we do not speak about our young people young people from uh, a negative deficit perspective. Right. How many restaurants want to believe, Hey, I'll give Liberty's kitchen youth the chance because those young people are broken and they need, they need help. And the truth of the matter is that's not the case at all. A young right. person who was looking for an opportunity came here, got trained up specifically in your industry right. and is probably better prepared to work in your environment than any common person coming in off the street filling out a resume that you have no idea who they are or what their background is. At least our young people, you know, we have done some training in life skills. We have done some development on, you know, social emotional learning. We have trained them to skill sets that are particularly useful in your environment. And you know that we are a branded organization that takes all of this training very seriously. What we're asking from you is that you carry the baton for that young person into your environment. Don't create a hell's kitchen environment. Create a you know, community of care in your space. Pay them an effective and efficient wage. Be honest with them about their skill, their, their shifts, and, and how frequently they're going to get paid. Because these people have more variables in the outside life from transportation and childcare and housing right. than you can even imagine. So if we could even do just that small part of facilitating some structure of standard in, in food service around 
regular schedules, uh, equitable equitable pay, mm-hmm. equitable opportunities, diverse staffing, um, you would see less turnover and less cost than incurred by restaurant owners. So we have to start having those conversations too. Like, are we going to keep continuing? And I'm hoping that what's happening with COVID is informing some of these discussions that say the hiring, hiring and then pay hierarchy as it has existed. I can only speak to, you know, some, some detail about hotel and hospitality and restaurants sure. that has been, you know, needed to be addressed for decades, centuries. Without. Absolutely. For centuries. Absolutely. Right. It's a broken system. And I think COVID has really, exposed a lot of that much as it has with the conversations around systemic racism and social injustice to really start opening eyes around what is the tip is the tipping system still fair what what does real wage work look like um what are, what are hours look like what is what does sick leave look like how can we assist in transportation given that we know transportation is a huge barrier public transportation right. is a huge barrier for a lot of our for our wage workers across the board. So how, how are we using our information to start having those conversations to support a better, more active and supportive community around um, food and food systems and food justice? I know we're trying to do our part and we've been very lucky and fortunate in New Orleans to work with some incredible partners and, and Liberty's Kitchen is an organization that holds up diversity, holds up this thinking that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for our customers and our frontline workers and our, and our, and our wage workers. Uh, we understand the investment in our team, and I don't think it's it's a big leap to look at the the status quo of how restaurants and food service has been managed in the past to identify that it's not working, and to begin to work on a system that really holds up trust and gives real opportunity and in in uh, engagement and investment into their workers so that it doesn't become such a revolving door space and people can really begin to make a, a career out of these opportunities of sport as opposed to just jobs. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's one of the few bright spots to come out of COVID-19 is that we, we see the need for really transforming the future of restaurants and the future of food service and what it actually looks like. And the, you know, your, your points about schedules and transportation, this is a lot of things that most folks don't think about who don't work mm-hmm. in food service. They don't understand, you know, that if you have a late shift, there's often, you know, there's not a bus or a trolley right. to get on, you know, and you have to take an Uber or get in, you know, get in a taxi. And that's, you know, a lot of your wages right at the door, you right. know, just to get back to your neighborhood. So all of these things, and I, I really love what you said about a community of care, if we can make Mm -hmm. the restaurant environment, you know, a place where there's less yelling and, you know, less, less, less harassment, less sexual harassment, less, you know, just, you know, sort of drudgery work, you know, that, that folks will make, want to make it a a career that youth will want to be engaged in it. I mean, I, I, yeah, I speak about that often when I travel, when I sit on other panels Um, and it's, it's not like, you know, something that's, you know, just directly something that I think about. I, I, it's, it's born out of conversation from other partners and other people who share the same frustrations that I do in trying to support our population and our youth, try to really presenting them with the best opportunities available. I was very fortunate. We as an organization are very fortunate to be, you know, funded and in and, and, and thought partnership with the Aspen, Aspen Institute. Oh, great. Yeah. We love them. As you, as you may know, uh, you know, a big focus of their work is uh, providing a fair, equitable, and diverse space for, you know, youth development, youth entrepreneurship, 
and, and, and uh, youth career building. And there was a panel, and I'll never forget what the young lady said as she spoke. But she said, if you really listen to young people, you know, uh, and hear about why they haven't kept jobs or why they have difficulty with employment, young people never leave jobs. They quit people, right? Sure. And as I think about that, I was like, that's not a statement that's like so untrue to even adults or anybody else. And I think about my own job history. If I've ever quit a job, it's usually been because I didn't like the person who was managing, right? So also uh, some work that we're doing with uh, the Annie Casey Foundation, there's just this feeling and it's this idea of what it looks like to create this sense of belonging in a space. Right. So many people, not just in restaurants and hotels, but so many people on the career level or workforce level will be much more inclined or invested to stay within organizations or opportunities or careers if they felt that upfront initial feeling of value or belonging within an environment. I think it's on the CEOs and EDs and the bosses of the world. They want to create these spaces where their employees feel valued. uh, They're they're, um, performing, you know, at very high percentages. It starts with how you treat your staff. It starts with them having some opportunity to be involved in decision-making processes. Uh, It has, uh, what are you offering as far as professional development? What does pathways within the organization look like? And it sounds on the surface like more work for the boss, but like anything else with change, it's not necessarily more work. It might seem that way up front, but it's more along the lines of evaluating how you want to your your efforts to show up, right? It's it's like maybe if you spend 10% on this as opposed to 50% on something right. and 30% over here and 40 on, on this, then it becomes this thing of wouldn't you rather spend your time investing in your current staff, given that you know how difficult it is to rehire, restaff, retrain, reuniform? You're wasting so much money, time, and effort on the revolving door scenario than you would be in the personal investment opportunities that strictly come from if you would treat your staff as human beings and less like roles and titles and boxes on an org chart. Right. Right. Yeah. Again, it comes down to that investment. What what do you want to invest in people so that you can, you know, have better, uh, a better organization, a better business. I I think those things are really important. I I, I do want to switch gears a little bit and see if you can give us um, a a sort of a, an overview of what's happening with the restaurant situation in, in New Orleans right now. I know there's been a lot of back and forth. There were closures, then things opened. And there, I, I, it's my understanding that things closed again this week, restaurants and bars or just bars. I'm not sure. Right. But what does that mean for the work that you do? So uh, that overview, and then maybe just a, a, a summary of what it means for Liberty's Kitchen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the restaurant hospitality industry is, is a lifeblood of this city. Um, which is both a pro and a con for us, right? It was it dramatically impact the landscape of uh, economic, uh, you know, economically for the city of New Orleans. But there are so many restaurants and so much need for food that they're not all gone, you know. Obviously, uh, and, and a lot of them have fought. And and like, yeah, you know, there's there's so many restaurants, and in New Orleans is just a, a place that's accustomed to eating. So the need for food is not going to go anywhere, despite COVID or not. So. Thankfully, we exist in a space where there is a need for food service in some capacity. It, it has been 
dramatically impacted in the amount of opportunities that we have as far as external partners and hiring partners and, and the like because of the simple fact that so many restaurants have had to close down. Currently, restaurants are still able, uh, like I said, we, we actually have a restaurant that's partnered with our work uh, that helps us to generate revenue. But uh, bars are all closed currently right now. Uh, as we're in phase two of what we can do in our in our city, uh, but restaurants can still do curb service and drive by service, limited dining. I think we're at if I if I'm not mistaken, I think 20 people okay. within the space. Um, we are not doing any dining service at our location, but we do provide curbside service. And how this all translates to how we're continuing to train our young people is again to my earlier point. We're not a cooking school. Right. We we have our own. Thankfully, we have our own kitchen and restaurant embedded into our program. So we're very lucky to say that I still have my chefs on site. I still have my trainers on site. So we can still put them in a kitchen. We can still uh, show them how to cook and teach them how to cook. That need to to be able to cook and provide for yourself and your family is is number one. Yeah. Part of the reason why we chose that as an opportunity for young people is because we want them to, to be able to make, better choices uh, around food, around what they put in their bodies, around how they can cook for their entire families, the the more they know more about uh, the opportunity or the ideas around what cooking can provide. So it starts there. Uh, The next thing is that we still have restaurant partners who, who, thankfully enough, understand how important we are within the community, want to see us make it through this. uh, And even though they may be reducing their capacity to hire, they still want to be able to train young people in some level of externship. That's great. They can help young people uh, as well. Um, we have paused, we did pause the program in March when all of this did happen because there was so much unknown, unfortunately. Um, and, and unfortunately it looks like there may be a looming part two to, to sure. a shutdown given that, you know, um, the cases seem to be going the opposite direction as opposed to, to flattening any, any kind of a curve. Sure. Uh, but right now uh, we're, we're counting on the partnerships. We're counting on uh, the relationships uh, and the support to be able to continue what we do. Uh, however, at a, at a vastly reduced rate, uh, we were doing upwards of just to give you an example. We did 10 students per cohort that we would train every three weeks uh, with the idea that we would, enroll upwards of anywhere from 120 to 130 and hopefully graduate upwards of 60, uh, 65 by the end of the year and still be able to provide service with about 80 to 90 to connect them to some service for self-sufficiency. At this rate, we're probably only going to be able to do two classes for the remainder of the year. They won't be able to overlap. We'll only be able to do anywhere from eight to 10 because of social distancing. So it's impacting us. You know, I won't, I won't say that it hasn't, but again, because we've been supported so incredibly through philanthropic partners that recognize the importance of our work, uh, the restaurant partners that do understand why we exist, and, and just an incredibly supportive board of directors. Uh, we've been able to make it through. We've been able to just kind of squeak through so far. Uh, we've been able to continue to provide service. And we've also had to pivot, too. You know, when we were down and we weren't doing in-house training, we were still getting food to the community. We had uh, programs coming in and utilizing our kitchen space to to do food giveaways. Uh, we had other partners and restaurants donating food that we could get to our young people. And our program yeah. team pivoted to deliveries and food deliveries for young people who couldn't leave or 
They don't have sure. grocery stores in their areas. So sure. the programming was still there. Young people still needed support. And I think if I had any advice for anybody in the context of what's happening around COVID, is to just kind of reduce yourself back to what are, what is your initial values as an organization? Right. It may not fit that standard structure that you, you know, you have listed, uh, you send out in a grant report. Well, what are you here to do? Support young people, feed young people, be there for our partner organizations and provide for community. And you pivot. You have to pivot. That's the, the word of the year, I feel like. Before I ask the final question, I want to make sure people can go to your website and they can donate there. LibertiesKitchen.org. Awesome. And we'll have that available on our website as well. Again, it's LibertiesKitchen.org. What do you need the most right now, Dennis? What, you know, in addition to, you know, funding to keep the organization alive, what would you ask, you know, the, you know, John Bell Edwards or, you know, the admin, the, 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 the administration in, in DC, what would you ask? What do you need the most from, from the governments at both the state, um, you know, the New Orleans government and, and, and the federal government? I mean, that's the laundry list, uh, honestly. Uh, I, I would say what I, what I would probably say is to reevaluate this, a stimulus package of some type. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, for us, from organizations like ours, the, the, the biggest difficulty is wanting everybody to go back to work to create some uh, normalization around commercial opportunities or economic investment. But if people don't have money, they don't have jobs, what are, what, how, how is money being circulated through the system? If there was a way we could revisit the PPP, because I know that came out at the beginning of the year, which was great. But I mean, it's kind of like a plug in the dam that we need. We have to figure out something, some other level of of either added incentive to to to, uh, organizations to pay their staff. I'm not I'm not really sure uh, how that would work, but there needs to be something other than just asking people to open to stimulate the economy, because I don't understand how. People who don't want to be grouped in large gatherings or with minimal opportunities to be able to serve, how you expect that to revitalize revenue and economic and economics and community? I don't I don't quite understand that. So I think there needs to be a revisit of some second tier of, of stimulus that needs to come through to help people. Um, I think would help uh, uh, the greater perspective of employers around the city. Uh, for us as an organization individually, um, donating, one of the hardest things right now to to get funds for, even through grants or emergency funding, right. is simple operation. You know, uh, We want to be here to continue to provide opportunities for community. We want to be able to provide food, but uh, you know, it costs. It costs to keep lights on. It costs to keep things running. And uh, if we don't have... We don't. We can only feed so many people in a day, and people are not traveling because of a you know global pandemic. If you want these things to stay afloat, then they're going to need help elsewhere. So, donations are always helpful. Supporting the organizations as frequently as you can, uh, when and how hour possible, you can uh, is always helpful. Uh, also, absolutely, all great recommendations. Um, again, libertieskitchen.org. Dennis, you've been a pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope folks will join us on our next episode when I'll be talking to Venkatesh Manar about micronutrients and and, uh, how they can help us stay healthy. Thank you so much, Dennis. Please stay well. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. 
Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.